0: Hi, friends. I'm so honored to be here today with Howard Resnick, the one and only. I will be addressing him him as Goswami. I've known him for so many years, most of my life. And we're here to discuss his new novel, Justin Davis. And I want to just start by saying, um, you know, that I've known you most of my life since my early teens. And since that time, I've heard you speak of this novel. So it's been in the ether and it's been in the works, it's been in your imagination and your heart for so many years. So it's just really exciting to see it finally being here, being with us. And so first of all, I want to congratulate you and ask, how does it feel to finally be complete with with this work?
1: It's a big relief. (laughs) It's a big relief. I, I first it was, uh, I think, back around 1981 that, that I, that's embarrassing.
0: Oh, well, before I was born, basically. <laughs> yeah, of course.
1: I was, um, of course, practicing bhakti yoga within the Krishna consciousness movement. And it was obvious to me that because this this spiritual science came from a foreign country, foreign to Westerners from India, that um, there was a significant cultural barrier and that the the actual spiritual science, the actual philosophy and practice were, to me, universal. And if properly explained, could be easily understood and appreciated by many people in in many different cultures. But that uh, somehow that wasn't really coming across and so uh i had the idea that of writing a book a novel that could uh, reach many people who simply could not get over this barrier of a very different external culture
0: Mm -hmm. right actually when i was reading the book i could sense two very strong forces and of course you probably felt like there were many forces at work to bring this to life. But two very distinct forces that I saw was, one, this desire to tell a really good story. I mean, it's a page turner, there's suspense, there's character building, there's everything in a good story. So I can see that you really put your mind and heart and creativity to create a genuinely you know, attractive story. So that's one really strong force in the book but then the second really strong motivation i could see was what you're saying this need or desire to transmit a spiritual teaching and so i my question to you is was there ever a conflict in marrying those two forces because it doesn't seem necessarily to be a a natural marriage because they are two distinct Kind of drive. So, how did you, what was your thought process there and how did you go about that?
1: Excellent question. Um, (laughs) I, when I began trying to write, I realized, if I can borrow a term from psychology, uh, I was a bit creatively frigid Mm -hmm. in the sense that uh, I, been engaged in this bhakti yoga practice very seriously with strict rules and monastic life for so many years that when I realized I have to create real characters, <laughs> believable characters, and my first reaction was, ooh, that's embarrassing <laughs> so you know because in in the in the bhakti yoga practice, it's like you know don't speculate don't you have to follow the the path right. and everything and um so it took me a while to work through all that, sort of get back, because when I was much younger, when I was a kid, student at Berkeley, back in the late 60s, doing all kinds of wild things, um, I loved to write, and it was just natural for me to just sort of say what I was feeling, probably a little too much. <laughs> but um, I don't think you've stopped doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to, I had to work my way through all that, And, um, and so then I I set myself these, these personal, um, what would you call it? Requirements or, or, or rules, my writing. And that is Mm. I wasn't going to publish the book unless I felt that um, spiritually it really had substance. I didn't want to water everything down. I wanted as far as I could to put real spiritual substance at the same time. I was equally determined not to compromise the literary quality.
0: Right.
1: And so it, it took a while for me to discover, in a sense, I had to go back to my own spiritual understanding and discover, rediscover the universality of it. Mm. Get get past the specificity and, and what and and how do you articulate this universality? in a way which is understandable to people who are not familiar with the tradition. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, so for years I, w- I was working on that because I was determined, I don't want this to be what we used to call jokingly, Pop Goes the Gita, you know, the Bhagavad Gita is the main text. And so it's just like you write a novel just as a, a As stage. an excuse,
0: as an excuse yeah. to transmit. Yeah, no, this book definitely doesn't come across yeah. like that.
1: So, so it had to have the literary quality. It had to have the spiritual quality, at least as far as I was able to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and also, I suppose, I was, of course, inspired by the medium, by that, by that particular genre of the novel as something which allowed you not just to write, let's say, a non-fiction essay on psychology or spiritual precepts, but to give life, as, as we actually experience as a whole, because even though sometimes we may think or talk about psychology or history or all kinds of things, but we actually experience life as a sort of a seamless whole. We just live life and, there are, and all these different elements come together. So I thought the novel really presents life as a whole as, as we actually experience it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I found that I had to set aside what I know about you over all this year someone who's very witty intellectual expressive I had to put everything I know about you aside so that I could really absorb this new part of you that you're expressing in the novel because there is a lot of softness there is a lot of kind of this nobility and family values there is a lot of genuine heart there which a softness that I had never seen in you before so I think that I could see that, you you know, transmitting or tapping into another side of yourself through this medium. And that brings me to my next question, which you've touched upon a little bit. But, you know, basically, as a leader in the Hare Krishna movement, you know, you're a guru. You have a following. You have many people looking up, up to you. How did you set aside that and all the expectations you must be feeling and the pressure to be a certain way and to produce a certain type of contents, to give lectures in a certain way. I mean, you're aware of your audience, I'm sure, and and your followers and like that. And how did you set that aside and open yourself to creativity, especially in most religious organizations kind of vilify the imagination, you know? So how did you set all of that aside to then embrace fully your own creativity, your own heart, and to be able to express it in this more freeing medium. You're saying it's more freeing, but how did you really overcome all those identities as a guru? It's a very interesting
1: question. I feel like the questions are so good that I'm I'm actually understanding better what I did by by listening to the questions. Um, I guess, I remember when I was at Harvard, I attended a lecture on, christianity at the divinity school and the professor who's a really nice guy he he said something which i never forgot mm-hmm. and that is that he said that in the christian universe in other words all the different kinds of christianity orthodox roman catholic all the protestant denominations, coptic whatever that um, <clears throat> there are two groups of people and there are many ways you can analyze, but uh, there are two groups of people, those who have sort of a simple faith and believe it, and it says here in this book, and others who also have faith and devotion, but who need personally a a rational understanding, people that care about history, real history, like who wrote these books, how did they come to, you know, what, and, and, and so on and so forth. And so in, in the in ISKCON or the Hare Krishna movement, um, inevitably, simply because it's composed of human beings, uh, there are these two groups. In any human organization, it can be religious, political, cultural, social, whatever, there are people who need a rational understanding, history-based, philosophy-based understanding, and those who don't, who may tend to just be satisfied with a particular doctrine or particular faith or devotion, which is
0: not bad. Right. I mean, I think what comes to mind is it's simple for the simple and complex for the complex. Yes. Which always suits me because I'm more on the complex side and it makes it
1: a little more. Well, actually, my teacher, Prabhupada, his, his very first instruction to me in 1969, I was a student at Berkeley. And when I began my practice, I wrote to him and asked whether I should stay in school or just do full time, you know, service.
0: Right, right. In, in the temple. Mm-hmm.
1: And Prabhupada wrote back to me and said, you should finish your education. He said, your duty is to present this ancient knowledge to educated people. Mm-hmm. And to do that, you have to be educated.
0: Right.
1: So that was the very first instruction I received. and sort of became the, the, my life mission, you could say. And so I knew that when I write this book, inevitably there is a Hare Krishna peanut gallery you know, there are going to be people out there, you know, saying, throw the bum out <laughs> because because I tend to be, I try, try to make a contemporary presentation. And because I personally, I personally need a, a rational, faithful, but also rational, not only faithful, not only logic chopping, but I need to understand a reasonable, intelligent, history-based way
0: mm.
1: what I'm doing. Right. And what I've found is that there are many, many people in the Krishna movement who have a similar need. And so I know that some people will take this as just one more reason, one more confirmation of my uh you know depraved condition, but that many, many, th- you know, thousands of, of followers would be inspired. And my personal experience is that when I I don't really see a dichotomy between trying to present this knowledge to, um, you could say, practitioners, believers, whatever you want to call it, um, and let's say the general public. Because, to be blunt here, you know, in a, in a rare departure of an angel <laughs> diplomacy, but, but <laughs> to be blunt here, well, go for it. Um, in terms of Western members of the Krishna Conscious Movement, those who are Western, and I don't mean that as a racial designation, but just Western in terms of their cultural outlook and their primary resonance. I mean, everyone is aware, you have to be a blind fool not to see that a spiritual movement which had great success in the late 60s and 70s uh, is not having anything like great success or even modern, you know, it's it's. Times have changed. And so I think there's a lot of very sincere, intelligent members of the Christian society who are very anxious, extremely anxious to find a way to get through to the general public, get past all these superficial external cultural barriers. And so I found that whenever I give a lecture or write an article or a book that really does connect with the outside world, That's the stuff that the inside people love the most, because a lot of people feel that it it's helping them to find a way to be successful in their own outreach.
0: Mm. Right. Well, I'm hearing you say a lot of words like rational, intellectual, and you know, kind of that's who you who you are, who I've known you to be all these years. Somebody, you know, extremely um, intelligent or able to articulate in that, but. I feel like creativity is tapped into a much softer side of oneself. Would you agree with that? Because, you know, again, the book itself, I've, I've, the past three days, I've just been immersed in that world, world, 750 pages. So, you know, is my, that how long it is, it is. Sorry about that. <laughs> you know, so very
1: small pages, very big print, uh-huh,
0: uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and, and. I definitely didn't experience it as an exercise in, in intellectuality, you know, that there was that, you know, you give voice to a lot of your thoughts about Indology and South Asian history and these things that you're talking about history, wanting to. So you know, you have your characters speak about that, but that felt to me like a smaller part yes, of yes, it, of because course. it is what you're saying. It is, a, it is a creative work first, maybe as a vehicle to transmit certain things. So, and you were mentioning here that you, you felt encouraged by, or you felt encouraged by knowing that this work will be received probably favorably by a lot of your followers. Um, it struck me however, that it doesn't seem to be written for a Hare Krishna audience specifically, it seems to be written more for general audience. a general audience.
1: Well, actually, you raise a very, a
0: very important,
1: interesting question, which is, which is that uh, it's a really important question, and it's kind of, and it's something which Western civilization has been struggling with for centuries, and that is kind of the relationship between reason and, and, and feeling, and so if you look at the 18th century, you get the age of reason,
0: right.
1: where just everything was science and everything had to be rational, but they went too far, and then and then it it produces equal and opposite reaction, which was romanticism, mm. which of course naturally went too far on the other side. And then, but so as but as far as your question, which I found to be really, really insightful question, I will refer here to my my own writing guru, who is Jane Austen. <laughs> I have have a spiritual guru, bro, but my writing guru is Jane Austen. And so um, if you take, there's a book, Sense and Sensibility, and Marianne Dashwood is way too far on the emotion side. She doesn't want to be reasonable. She just wants to feel Mm. and, and, you know, and and she exalts her passions above any type of reason and then gets her and almost kills herself doing so. And so then at the end, when she's learned her lesson, as all good Jane Austen here wants do, when she learns her lesson, she, her, her conclusion is that I have to restore my life because she almost died from what she, and she said she's going to do it with two things, religion and reason.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: And so to me, if you take emotions emotions as we know can be good or bad i mean some people feel the emotion that i should you know kill my spouse or that i should you know do some other horrible thing or or you know people do all kinds of evil beca- emotionally driven right and of course people also can make evil calculations but um so therefore what krishna teaches in the gita get back to the good Mm -hmm. book now you know old Gita thumper what Krishna actually teaches in the Gita is that um, we should feel we must feel because we're personal souls but that our emotions should be not suppressed by reason but governed by reason and therefore buddhi a rational analytic intelligence has to govern our emotions so that Govern doesn't mean restrain them or hold them back. But let's say I feel a particular emotion and then is that appropriate? Like, for example, let's say I'm angry at someone, but is that appropriate? You know, does that person deserve my anger? Mm -hmm. And and even if that person may have made some mistake, is my anger the best thing for them or for me? And is it just going to make things worse? So, or let's say someone becomes attached to another person. Is this relationship going to lead me to a happy, fulfilling life or to to, to a disaster? And as we know, relationships go both ways. And so I, you know, when it's often, it's often been presented to me and, and I, I always thought it was absurd that it's about the heart, not the head or something like that.
0: There, there I, I feel like... I mean even as you're saying civilization or in society it's like there's a dichotomy as if we're one or the other which can right. never be true right and and just since you're saying the gita what was that so we vish and i were discussing this that just that particularly that line bring your mind and confine it into your heart because the mind itself can like you're saying just mislead us and take right, us everywhere right. but if it's brought into the heart it becomes sort of like a spokesperson right or you can use all your emotional space all your heart so what was the point for you where you were able to switch into was there like a breaking point where you just fully embraced your creative side and decided there to was. really go with your heart actually yes. I, had a,
1: I had yeah there was actually a particular moment okay i was uh spent uh several months in san luis obispo Beautiful town near the central coast of California, kind of getting away from, to be honest, just trying to get away from all the uh, complications of being a leader of an institution.
0: Yes. And I oh, just, you deserve a break.
1: Yeah, I, I took several years of break, and so, <laughs> and so I was walking in this beautiful park, if you know, central coast Laguna Lake Park, very beautiful park with a big lake and all these mountains around it and it just suddenly came to me all at once mm. for me from the heart from god right that you have to create real people yeah you can't just this can't be cartoonish it can't be you really have to let these people live they have to be real people with real feelings yes and i was it was such a strong thing i remember i literally took off my hat and threw it up in the air <laughs> Because I just I just all at once, I could just see how to go forward, but even let's say writing this i many authors have said that um, it's very common that you don't really create the characters, they just kind of appear and present themselves to you, and you sort of follow them around right and um so it, it was just i get I would say I was using my reason by trying to understand who are these people and what are they really feeling, but, but the people themselves, the character themselves, they are both rational and feeling creatures. So trying to understand them and, and trying to understand how to, how I can not get in their way and let them have real lives in this story lives that will be interesting to other people
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, and and lives that will lead them to where they need to go. And and because I know myself when I read a novel um or watch a movie, uh, unless there's someone in the story that I really admire, that I'm really rooting for, I drop out of it. Mm-hmm. I know for example, I, I, I won't mention some of the books I tried to read or some of the movies I tried <laughs> to watch, but yeah, if I sometimes, you know, it's like for every 20 movies I try to watch, maybe like one or two of them, I can actually hang into the end. And so I need that. I need to to give one example. Um, okay, this gets into another important point
0: okay.
1: for me, and that is the you could call it philosophy of art or the philosophy of the artist. Mm. I, I think one of the uh, real disasters of romanticism was this notion of the artist as a type of creative agnostic but old testament prophet like speaking truth to power and and of course everyone that writes or paints you know flatters themselves that well when i'm dead everyone will realize how great i was and Mm so it's a lot of narcissism Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and 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 so i very much prefer the older Concept, the pre romantic vision of the artist,
0: mm.
1: which is in a sense a public servant. The way I see it, every one of us has obviously responsibility to ourselves as individuals to keep ourselves healthy in every sense, but also we very much have public and social responsibilities. We couldn't even do language if it weren't for society, we couldn't walk down the street in safety. There wouldn't be food in the in the market. Right. So all of us to me have profound duties and responsibilities, obligations to society and to God. And the fact that I'm a so-called artist or writer doesn't exempt me. It doesn't mean that I stand above that. I mean, I have to say, so when I I when I look at things like say the books of James Joyce, I feel like I want to say, can't you just say what you mean? so that everybody can understand it. And so to me, I know some people you know, may be uh, appalled to hear this, but James Joyce is not someone I'm going to read, but say Charles Dickens or Jane Austen, because I was just watching a lecture today on YouTube that uh, Jane Austen's sense of responsibility. Let me just give you as an example, two people, two men who lived in the same place at the same time had the same social concerns Mm -hmm. and yet produced very, very different results. These two men lived in London. One of them is Charles Dickens. The other is Karl Marx. Right.
0: Same time. Very influential, both of them. Same concerns. Mm -hmm.
1: In the name of Marx, about 10 to 20 times more people were killed in the 20th century than those killed by Hitler. Just a statistic. I'll leave it there. Whereas Charles Dickens, uh, I mean, a lot of what we take for granted now in terms of social welfare, I mean, he had had a powerful effect. And so to me, someone like Dickens, I mean, all his great novels, Tale of Two Cities, I mean, I won't list them here. His commentary on the French Revolution, which was a devastating moral critique of of the atrocities of it. And so Charles Dickens was a man with a very profound and intense social conscience. Who cared deeply? I mean, think of a Christmas carol.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: this deep, deep concern for the state of humanity, not just the poor, but even the moral state of those who are not poor. And he used the novel, he wrote these incredible novels. You know, it's like, I'm just amazed. Like, how did he do that? The yeah. way he uses language. Or Victor Hugo. I mean, if you look at Les Miserables, which is really what's really going on in Les Miserables. I mean, I don't. I read the book first. I read the book first. I can't watch the musical. I don't know. But um, you take a man Jean Valjean, who who falls really to the lowest state of humanity in the sense that he's falsely imprisoned for many many years. He comes out of prison bitter, angry, as a misanthrope, someone that just despises humanity. And then a priest saves him from the police and gives him a start. And it shocks him his whole well. right. and 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 so what you see is going from the lowest position, what Victor Hugo actually did is he takes this person, Jean Valjean, puts him in the lowest state where he just he just despises humanity. And step by step, I'm going through all the stages, he becomes practically, I mean, a real saint, a, a, a this God-conscious saint. And you see all the steps, and so. I mean, Victor Hugo, if you read, whether you read him in translation or in the French original, I just like scratch my head like, how does he write like that?
0: But it sounds like what really appeals to you in the works of these, you know, great authors is their social consciousness. Well, it's the
1: both. It's the fact that Victor Hugo is just like, like I said, I can't figure out how could someone write that well. Okay. So he's a great writer. both in terms of his language, his plot structure. He's just, you know, obviously a genius. And yet a genius, a literary genius with profound social conscience, Mm -hmm. to me, that's the great artist. Mm -hmm. Someone who writes a book that only the, you know, intellectual elites can pretend like they understand or say they understand a book that doesn't really transform society. To me, that's not the great artist. To me, it's just a form of vanity. It's a form of ego that, you know, I'm an artist. That's what I like about Jane Austen. She didn't hang out with artists. She didn't think I'm an artist. She just, you know, she lived at home. It was her duty to make the breakfast in the morning. And she just sat down at a little table about this big and re- wrote some of the greatest novels ever written. And so I admire those people who, who had great social conscience and, and great skill to combine. And you were talking about reason and, and, and emotion, so in a sense, I think there's a sort of parallel where you combine powerful, deeply felt art with, with social conscience. To me, that's the great arts. And that's what I was aspired for. I can't say, you know, I right. achieved it, but,
0: no, but- I love so many of the things you are saying here because especially myself growing up in the Krishna, Hare Krishna movement, I feel like there was always a big divide between us and them. And it's a sense, oh, the only thing of value we can have is going out and on harinam and chanting and like giving them krishna but you know what you're kind of highlighting here is that we're all in this together we're all in one society that division between like us and them is a false thing and there are different ways like what you're trying to do with this book there are different ways to um uphold that that um consciousness together it doesn't have to be so direct And I want to just read something from your book, a little snippet Uh that made me think of you. (laughs) And as you were speaking, it just came to me. So this is a direct quote from the book. And I'm going to see this is uh, Justin Davis speaking, the main character from the book. But I want you to comment on this. So, quote, it had taken him thousands of years to submit to Krishna. And it might take another few thousand before he dared to risk his public respectability by speaking like a preacher or a true believer. So this is Justin Davis in the book. And so I was wondering, how does that relate to you? Because it seems like you've already risked your public respectability in in, in some ways, you know, in terms of the larger society by being part of the Hare Krishna movement and speaking like a preacher and a true believer. That's, that's basically you, but then your main character, you're having him take a step back and kind of look at that in a different way. And he's not ready to do that. So it's kind of like a,
1: these are really great <laughs> questions. These are, I, I'm just, uh, admiring the questions, not because they're about me. They're just very thoughtful.
0: Um, And, you know, that also relates to, okay, this book, the story aspect of the book will be very appealing to, say, any UF college student. Right. But some of the more um, philosophical aspects might be off-putting or might feel, I mean, to quote another, another one from the book, Justin Wonders, he's wondering about Davy, and he said, Or had Davy actually presented a sectarian version of history? So Justin, he's wondering, can I really believe Davy? He's in this process of seeing, is she coming with something genuine? Is she real? Or does she have another motive? Is she presenting a sectarian version of history? And so I felt that kind of related to your book also. Are you presenting a... (laughs) <laughs> sectarian coming of age story. Is it a sectarian, um, superhero coming of age kind right, of right. story? You know So what's your, what's your. What you up to, <laughs> So, okay. S- specifically with this, I mean. You Those know, are really good questions. Uh,
1: I'm just, again, just admiring the questions. Um, okay, for, for some time now in my own outreach, I have felt a responsibility and just a a personal need. When I try to teach Krishna consciousness, let's say to people who are not insiders, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: uh, I feel a duty to them actually to show that it's reasonable. Mm -hmm. And, And I don't feel that I can urge people to do things, to change their lives, to adopt, Practices or beliefs be beyond the point, I mean, more than I can show them to be reasonable. It's only, I only have the, in a sense, the right to ask people to adopt or believe things to the extent that I can show that those things are reasonable. Mm -hmm. And so again, I think it gets back to the connection between the heart and the head because. To me, a successful, happy, well-balanced, progressive person is precisely one who has integrated the emotions and, and the rational intelligence. If we just have what people called combining religion and philosophy, if, if in fact, history, even recent history, last few centuries show the, the evil and the, just the absolute catastrophic results when people have ideologies you know the age of ideology and dogmas Mm -hmm. which don't really have the proper feelings and the proper heart and leads to genocide in so many ways and so as far as those quotes you read um i wanted the story is not just autobiographical and obviously any writer puts something of themselves into it but And so um, Justin has grown up and lived in a world in which people are very skeptical in general, especially intelligent people, about the possibility, not to speak of the probability, of ever really being God conscious in a profound way because it's so common in intellectual environments to say, well, no one really can know God and that's just your opinion. And of course, all the foolishness of postmodernism, subjectivism. I won't get on that (laughs) so fast right now. But I think it's it's ultimately terrible philosophy and and, and, and destructive in its own way, the idea that everybody has their own truth. It's sort of like, to me, it's the ultimate, it's like the, the cherry on the cake or the icing of narcissism because now we democratize reality. So everyone has their own truth and no one. So like right now, for example, if, I, if you think we're in Gainesville and I think we're on the outer ring of Saturn, you know, that's just your truth that we're in Gainesville right now. And my truth is that we're on the outer ring of Saturn. When I was a kid, they called that clinical insanity.
0: I and- think, um, just to jump in on that, I think that seems to be a reaction the pendulum swings because the world has been so controlled by religious organizations and so I think people are now swinging to like, you can't tell me what to think or what to believe or what's true because I'm going to determine that for myself. Yeah, I there also, is something, yeah. I mean, there's yeah. something valid in that. But then maybe uh, as you're pointing out, it might be, I was swinging say, a little. Pendulum, yeah, I mean, I've endlessly explained
1: these things as, as a result of a historical dialectic a la Hegel. You know, the synthesis, Hegel. the antithesis, I mean, the thesis, antithesis and synthesis. So, although apparently he didn't actually use those terms, but they're always attributed to him, but it kind of boils down to that. I mean, you're certainly right. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i convinced that history does move dialectically or pendulum effect. I mean, it, it's Newton's, I think, third law of motion. Equal and opposite. Every action produces an equal and opposite reaction. And that's why extremisms, left or right, will always destabilize society and never actually get to the point because they must produce an equal and opposite extreme. And so, um, but if you look at Western history, and uh, I mean, I think on the one hand, of course you're right, that that rejection of of objective truth um, comes from a, a very bad history of having, to a great extent, irrational religious truths violently imposed
0: right
1: however among those who respond to it there will always be those who are just um proud and to take advantage kind of want a free ride on the dialectic just to indulge their own vanity and narcissism and so it's you know it's a complex situation but so so what i say is that um and i've often said this in my lectures that What we need now is to move forward to the third stage of the dialectic. Because if you're living in antithesis, you're not really living because you're just defining yourself as the opposite of what you don't like. And so I think history has to move forward to to the next stage, the synthesis. where we That's why, for example, they have an innovation center, the district here by the University of Florida, in which they have three, I forget there's three words like create imagine or something like that and the third one is disrupt and -hmm. i just thought god is that foolish because yeah disrupt bad things like let's say we want to disrupt serious diseases we want to disrupt um bigotry but there are many good things and so before you disrupt maybe you better find out
0: don't what, destroy the system. Yeah, what, you, yeah what
1: you're disrupting. Maybe you're yeah. disrupting something like, for example, we recently had a, a a politician that came in and disrupted a kind of consensus that people should not either be racist or at least not publicly express racist views. And then, you know, a politician comes along and disrupts that. So disruption
0: is not a good it depends on what you're disrupting. So, what are you disrupting with this novel? <laughs> what is Justin Davis? Well, I mean, you know, to bring it back to to the novel, yes. is it is it a response? I think to it's, something
1: to some extent. It's a response to my perception that uh, the Krishna consciousness movement is not sufficiently reaching people. The Prabhupada even said, "Cultural conquest." I, I think we have to create culture there there tends to be an idea in iskon that to present culture means to bring culture from south asia and that's culture mm-hmm. and um, if you if you look at culture in general and hope i am getting back to the book here my view <laughs> my view is that um great culture whether it's literature dance i know you're a great dancer thank you I've watched your videos. So what whether it's dance or, or singing or you know, playing music or writing or painting, great culture by definition, it's it's always historically situated in the sense that you live at a certain time and place. And yet it transcends it it, 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 it definitely um, it definitely embodies a historical reality. But at the same time, transcends it. Like, for example, the music of Bach, to give one example, which I right. play in the key. Yeah. Um, I mean, clearly it's Baroque music. I mean, everything about it is Baroque, the counterpoint, the, I mean, you know, it's Baroque music, and it actually represents even the reality of, of German Baroque music and of the Lutheran church in, in some of the sacred music that Bach wrote, wrote a lot of sacred music. And at the same time, even though Bach's music is is definitely rooted historically, but but from that root it grows and transcends it, so it speaks to basically you know lots of people at all times everywhere. And so I think the real issue is that let, let, let's say you take a certain form of Indian culture, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm not saying that, you know that, it, that that Western culture is better. I'm just saying that you take a certain form of Indian culture, let's say painting. Or, or music, and so on the one hand, it's um, definitely historically situated. If you know the history of India, you'll know exactly what, you know, what it's coming from. Right. And the, but then the question is, to what extent does a particular, let's say South Asian cultural expression, yes. th- to what extent does it transcend its historical matrix and powerfully speak to people at other times and places? Mm-hmm. And I, my personal opinion, it's just me, is that mm-hmm. often in in the Christian in the movement, that the, the transcendent power of Indian culture tends to be exaggerated. I mean, some of it really is transcendent, but a lot of it, I think, it, it we I think we tend to exaggerate how much it really does transcend. And um, and of course, you can measure this by seeing how many people. Actually, resonate with it. Yeah, Western people, let's say, of their own accord, just that's what they prefer when they download music, when they go to the theater, and so on. And uh, so, so I think that does tend to be exaggerated. There's a certain niche. I mean, there's a certain cultural space in the West for world culture, and it's respected. And it should be respected. It's you know, it's, it's impressive, you know, culture. And, and, and so there's a certain world culture market. But in terms of mainstream, for example, Bollywood, which is interesting, but, but Bollywood is, is getting more attention because they're more kind of adopting the sort of global norms for good movies yeah. in, in many different ways. Yeah. So um, I think that's our duty. I mean, you're obviously an artist and you're obviously very talented and intelligent. And um, I, th- I think our responsibility is to find artistic expressions, whether it's a novel, a dance, whether it's song or painting, whatever it is, that actually reach people. And I think we do have to pay attention to the numbers. I, I-, I think it's it's a it's a tragic mistake to think, you know, gati sukriti that, well, maybe not a lot of people are interested in this, but you know, it's it's the future it's destined to be because it comes from India or that they're getting benefit, even if they don't know it. And I think those are very dangerous ideas. I think we really need to pay attention to the extent to which we're reaching people.
0: Well, that's, that's kind of nice having a sense of respecting the feedback that we're receiving. Yeah. Are they appreciating what we're offering or, or not? Yeah. So, where do you, where do you envision, you know, the best case scenario of this? You know, it just came out yesterday, correct? The book? Yeah. So what's your... I haven't got mine yet. (laughs) What's your, I mean, what's your dream for this book? Where do you, it sounds like, you know, you're very eager to kind of break open and and for it to land. Yeah. Not just land in in your home base, but land further out. So what's your, what's your kind of dream for this book? Where do you, where do you envision it? whose hands or which group of people or right, right. Whom, where, where do you just kind of dream or envision this book to land?
1: Oh, I mean, if I, if my dream, I mean, I would like it to sell millions of copies. I don't expect that to happen, but uh, I mean, I, that's what I would love to happen. I, I mean, just being, cause we know each other very well. Yes. I, I think, and your questions, I, this is really one of the best interviews I've ever done. You're, <laughs> I'm going to take you around. With me. So, um, <laughs> I, I mean, realistically, I have to kind of break out a little bit for my own institutional, what do you call it? Not apathy, but because the reality is, if we want to just be honest, you know, mm-hmm. we're adults, mm-hmm. that in the Hare Krishna movement or ISKCON and so on, even though thousands of people do kind of follow me, it kind of like, how did that happen? But anyway... <laughs> Um, cause I, anyway, so, and yet the institutional, like, you know, the institutional ISKCON, so yeah. to speak, mainstream institutional kind of, um, I don't want to say blackballs me, but they sort of avoid me. And so, the, for example, I did a Bhagavad Gita. Right.
0: Yes.
1: And the the feedback has been fantastic. I mean, you know, you can give it to your dentist, you can give it to your neighbor, you can give it to anyone. They're going to like it. And so we've had just like an incredible feedback and yet the Hari Krishna movement as an institution will never promote it. will never actually never like the BBT and the book thing. I mean, they really, yeah. yeah. And so I, and so I've kind of, I can see that announced my younger associates who are actually like nudging me, come on, we got to promote this. And so, so I think what I need to do or for example, now, because the COVID thing, um, there's um you know all these spiritual what do they call strategic? you know they're like every day you're in bus you get all these things yes and so they'll never ask me to do a program even though thousands of people listen to me or if they do a film about you know promotional film about iscon they won't interview me and so, so you've
0: already kind of established yourself as a controversial figure or someone who maybe isn't toying the party line
1: well because because i realize that this that that this you know i don't want to say the sink the ship is sinking <laughs> i mean I, I don't want to use that maybe that's over dramatic language but but there is if you're if you're an academically trained historian you will know that the, that iscon is in historical crisis in terms of trying to maintain or just trying to get back to what we were one problem is here: relevant, well-known, and so on, and and that's not the case now among, mm-hmm. let's say, a non-Hindu audience, either in India or diaspora. Right.
0: Well, so let me just bring it back to actually my my very first question. Okay. So wait,
1: can I can just add one more thing. Okay. Yes. Go I, ahead. I don't want to interrupt you. But no. 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 So therefore, in a sense, what I need to do, and and what I've been a little lazy and I haven't done it, but now the young people with me, they're they understand these things much. They know much better than I do is going on out there. And so we need to create our own sort of promotional thing to get it out to the world, which that's what authors normally do. And so I've been kind of maybe a little too apathetic because I've been in an institution, but an institution which as an institution uh, is sort of committed to not promoting what I do. And so I think the next step that I need to take is to work with all these brilliant young people that Krishna's sending that are helping me and uh and start to promote things I wouldn't like a lot of people to read it. Right. Not I think I can honestly say, not just uh, you know, trying to sound humble or something, that, you know, I've lived long enough. So whether, you know, whether I'm a best selling author or not, it's like gonna eat my rice every day and have a banana but <laughs> yeah
0: your whole life isn't writing on yeah. it and yet it is a, a kind of major achievement for you but it is
1: something I want because because if if I didn't really think the book could help people a lot then I wouldn't care but I, I think it can I think I think it is a good book not to my credit but just I think I was blessed to somehow be an instrument to do this.
0: And how long did it take you to complete (laughs) the book? I mean, of course we know the whole, you know, writer's block in this, but actually like if you look at your execution hours,
1: I would say more than writer's block. I had, I had to grow to, I I think both as a human being and as a spiritual practitioner, I had to grow into the service. Mm -hmm. And so as far as how long when I'm really in my groove, so to speak, I'd say I I'd try to write uh, four to six hours a day, and so it took years, I mean it took years working, 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 because in my friends, I had so many friends, especially my age, you know my younger ones, they made you know, a little more shy about saying, my, my, my old friends would say they actually had all these theories that there was a psychological issue, there was some psychological block and that's why I didn't just publish. Come on, it's good enough. Just publish it. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to, you know, some some of you even suggested I get professional help. But I knew, I knew very well that when the book is ready, I'll know it. Mm-hmm. You know, Krishna will tell me.
0: So it has like various drafts, kind of, been sitting oh, on your computer for years. Not and just not just sitting, but
1: it? I just knew it's not there yet. I knew it's not ready, and I didn't want to publish for all posterity something that I knew wasn't ready. Right. And so I just kept working on it and working. But in the process, I had to grow. But I just mentioned one thing about the general, the art of writing, yes. which, which I experienced. And that is, you know, if you go to a psychologist and they say, like, here's some ink spots, what do you see? Uh, I see my grandmother poisoning me, you know. something. So, <laughs> it's, you know, they give you something. You, so, so the act of cre- creating a story sort of pulls out your deep psychology.
0: Yeah, that's why I think it's so raw and so terrifying for many people because it's like you are putting yourself on the line. You're revealing parts of yourself that you normally wouldn't.
1: Or you reveal them to yourself. And so I found, and this is just a general note in writing that may be useful to writers, that um, when I first started writing, I find there was a stage where I had to break through my own. This is embarrassing, you know. I had to break through that. I'm sure as a dancer, you know, you've got to, be willing to go out there and just express yourself. Well, that
0: I have my, you know, my, my Ramayan retelling with my mom. Yes, you're, also, you a know, you're that, also an author. That really required that kind of tons of writer's breakthrough, so I can I wish I had your book relate. here to promote
1: it. Rinda, her mother is a great author. She's also <laughs> a great writer, dancer. She's a very talented person, and so buy her book. I don't have one to show you what's it called
0: um well it's the sitas fire trilogy and you can find all the details at sitas book three is coming out now in april
1: sitas com. it's great
0: yes thank you
1: so so i found my first stage was to break through all that but then when i broke through there was another stage i had to go through and that is when i'm just like you know the novel as an endless rorschach test or something you know it's where you're I'm so creating the, characters. And then I went back and I looked at it. And I said, "Why do the women tend to be like this? Or why do the, you know, men tend to be like that?" And and it was very emotional because if you really, when I finally opened up, I found that sometimes, to be writing, and I, I would only notice afterwards that I'd been just like crying for ten minutes.
0: That's beautiful. And I I'm going to jump in there with something that really stood out to me is that several of the prominent characters in the book are women. And you kind of go out of the guru, including the the guru. The most exalted person in the book is a female. And you kind of go out of your way to say that, you know, Justin, the main character in the book, for him, these women become key reference points in his life. And in other words, throughout his life, these women are extremely influential in his life. And you've written them so beautifully the female characters. And so I wanted to just jump in and ask, would you be comfortable calling this kind of like a feminist work? Or what were you what was your kind of thought process? Was it an accident that these women became, you know, so they hold their ground equally with their male counterparts? I mean, there's no, there's no sense of them being less than or inferior or subordinate or any of these things that traditionally, you know, a woman should always be subordinate to a man and so on. Um, It seemed to me that there was, that question didn't even come to the forefront in the book because you've really just exalted all the female characters to be on equal ground. And, you know, Devi, the guru is a female. So it's like, she's also the most exalted one. So that was very moving to me personally. And if you can speak, speak about that.
1: I had a great mother. And so I grew up thinking that, you know, if a woman is very intelligent and has excellent character and loving, that that's normal. Right. That's just normal for a woman to be a leader, to be intelligent. And so, as far as saying it's feminist, I think Davy really inspired me, and um, I think I wanted. It's not that I wrote it with a political motive, but I was happy when these characters emerged the way they do, and I was never going to write a book where where the women are less than men, mm-hmm. because I just that's just not my own.
0: That's not your experience. Yeah. Yeah.
1: If I could just get back to one thing, and that is that um, there's Radhika. She's a great lady. Um, I found that once, like, the floodgates open, I really kind of opened myself, um, you know, my own heart or emotions where I could just, that I had to go through a period where inevitably all of my own deep psychology was coming up. Mm-hmm. and a lot of times nowadays in modern art or modern fiction or modern anything, they think that's, okay, that's it, I've arrived because I'm being authentic, and I. but I knew, no, that's just the second stage.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The third stage, which I got through by working through all of this emotional stuff,
0: mm-hmm.
1: was where I, I had now the ability to feel and to feel deeply, and, um, and all that. But I myself as the writer had become much more transparent. Mm. In other words, I'm not creating characters a certain way or having certain things happen to them or have them feel certain things because my own stuff is coming up. I sort of became aware of all that and I could just be a writer. And with the ability to feel and hopefully to feel deeply but that I, I was not unknowingly or knowingly just imposing my own deep psychology on the characters. I felt the characters had a right to live their own lives. Mm. And, and I saw myself in a sense, as a servant of, facilitator of these people who have their own lives.
0: Wow, so to be a, the best servant you could be, you felt like you had to remove or, or be honest about what was coming up for you and then work with that and remove that from them and impose that on them.
1: Exactly. I didn't want to unconsciously or consciously just have the book or the characters as just an instrument of my self-expression. I wanted to honor them. Like it's about them. It's not about me, but naturally because we're all human and we're all souls, you know, I, I think I had deep empathy for a lot of the characters and, um, but still, it was them, not me. I Can won- you
0: share with us? That was, you know, you said that during the writing process, you would find yourself in tears. You're so deeply moved by what was, would you share with us one scene or one unfolding from the book? Sure. That, that brought up that really deep emotion for you? Yeah,
1: I, um, actually, a lot of those most emotional scenes didn't make the final cut. Although they, I mean, but they did. But I, they became themselves rather than, I'm trying to think, Um, I think they sometimes involved uh, sort of pathos tragedy where people were misunderstood Mm. and even like tragically misunderstood or separated from loved ones.
0: Would you mind sharing a little bit more? Because, you know, I don't want to spoil, I don't want to give away spoilers, but if you say it then. You know, so maybe can we, you know, step away from, you know, other works and step into this work and just speak a little bit in depth about the book itself. Maybe you can. You're you're, you're the best (laughs) interviewer I've ever come across. So (laughs) going into the work itself, what is it? A chapter, a scene, like you're saying, what was, can we maybe go a little deeper into the specifics of the book? And what was something that was very moving for you? Something that really brought you to that? Even if it didn't, you know, you're saying some of it got cut out, but it must've informed the process and I'm made it to very think. yeah, what brought me to yours and actually made the final Because so, so far we've only said Justin Davis, the name, and we've heard of Davey, but. You know. I think, okay, I think one thing,
1: and this may say, I and mean, I hope it's not more general than you wanted, but um, <laughs> I think from the very beginning, because I had different versions and I, you know, I, I mean, it was always kind of the same story, but it really grew and grew and grew. Mm-hmm. But I think a common denominator that moved me a lot was the character, Davey, you know, she's a young lady, she's one of the main characters and how the world misunderstood her.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the second half.
1: Yeah, and um, of course back, you know, in the other place, no spoilers there, but. And I think that was kind of the, I think what one thing that really moved me was you having this great young lady who was, uh, who I admire, you know, profoundly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that came out. Yes. And, um, and yet uh, being subjected to type of, you could say social injustice. Yeah. Because the world simply doesn't understand her
0: because she had yogic powers or she's, you know, so exalted that people would just negatively assume that it was like witchcraft and, yes. you and know, so that's kind of a witch hunt yes. against her and that felt.
1: And also by, you could say, dark forces mm. who were actively acting against her right? and the world believing the wrong version. Yeah. So, um yeah, that.
0: Yeah. So she is, the most exalted person in in the book, but yet she's the most feared, and people, you know, the assume most the worst, the misunderstood, and they assume they're they're afraid rather than seeing her greatness. They're feer, fearful of of her, and that felt really just unjust to you and very like kind of heavy.
1: Well, it was um, it it got to me hmm. to use the common phrase. Right. And I also should give credit to, I mean a lot of people, some people have to give credit to, but uh, there's one friend, Shamala Kishori, mm. who's not here, but you know Shyamala. And it's funny because she wrote me a comment. She read an earlier version of the book, and she said, um, Davey was almost too
0: Too exalted.
1: Well, like like frozen, like because as 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 a as a great yogini, um so that I had to go back and I had to try to understand because someone can be spiritually advanced but also have very strong feelings as we know. So how those feelings come out in this world in a way which doesn't lead people to misunderstand that this person is mundane. And so what kind of deep emotions, which are understandable to human beings, um, are still appropriate for someone who is on a high spiritual level. right? And as we know, even, even in, you know, we know in our own uh, exalted institution, that um, it, it, it's, it's been a point which, which, you know, the institutions have struggled to understand like what kinds of emotions, you know, you know when do you say that emotions are inappropriate or, or at least inappropriate for someone in a certain spiritual position? And when are they appropriate? And, and what does, you know, can someone be spiritually advanced and still have all kinds of feelings, even about other people? And, right. And it's something which, I and mean, there's danger on both ends because one can sort of unwittingly materialize spiritual positions and sort of open the floodgates to all types of imitation, hypocrisy, and and so on but on the other hand one can have sort of a sort of an unstated impersonal view
0: well i could see you really exploring that in the book that there was this meditation on eternal love versus corporeal love you know how much is our love based on just the body of the person or our relationship right now versus the eternal you know more you you do explore that quite both directly and indirectly in the book
1: yes right? yes exactly
0: yeah and one thing i particularly loved about justin is his family values i mean he's very motivated by taking care of his mother and his brother that's like one of his primary driving forces and that was so beautiful to read because you know again growing up in the krishna movement i didn't i haven't always felt that family is valued or you know honoring your family family relations that's maybe historically not been something that a man or a person or a family person is um, you know encouraged to do it's more you know you should serve krishna or you should (laughs) serve god and you know don't become attached there's been so much fear around expressing emotion i can't even imagine for you as a guru it must have been even more more so you know uh, yeah, I, I just can't even imagine how much more that pressure you've had to work with with, with that expectation around around your your heart and what you are allowed to express. Very well put, I that's yeah, that's exactly right. So I'm going to jump back to my very first question about the, you know, the two driving forces of the book that I saw. One was this like telling a good story. And I think you've spoken about that your desire to create like a really good work and you're obviously super well read and a lover of the arts. And I think that shows in the story aspect of the book, which is very strong. And then we have this other aspect, which is also another big part of your identity is transmitting something spiritual and so my kind of question when i read the book is okay you know the story aspect is going to appeal to a mainstream audience but then maybe some of the more spiritual aspects then it you know and i've tried to ask you throughout the interview do you think that a regular reader approaching this book how will they feel about those maybe more sectarian or religious or overtly devotional mm-hmm. aspects how, how do you think that that's going to land since you want to sell a million copies or more of this book. <laughs> Very good.
1: Um, I did think a lot about that. And I mean, the notion of religion as such, which is I mean, among other things, not exclusively, really a sociological notion. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a group of people acting together in certain ways certain structures and hierarchies and so on and, forth and so forth. And there's a whole field called sociology, religion.
0: Right.
1: And so in trying to present Krishna and in a sense, Krishna can't simultaneously be true and sectarian. So I went with true, mm-hmm. but at the same time, um, I actually, use a good old word, hearken back. In my mind, I, um, I thought back to the time before I became a member of the institution. I was, I guess, about 20 years old, 19 20 years old, you know, from California and a student at Berkeley, my parents living in Southern California. And, um, sort of like the graduate without Mrs. Robinson. So, um, so when I first started to learn about Krishna, it wasn't a religion to me. It wasn't, and it wasn't an institution. It was just, first of all, it it was this wonderful concept. It was philosophy, I began to read Bhagavad Gita. And it was ontology specifically. It was the philosophy of being. And um, so my own attitude toward Krishna or toward chanting, you know, the Krishna mantra or associating with practitioners or looking at the art or eating the sacred food. um, The last thing... in the world, in my mind, was I enjoying a religion.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's just not what I understood I was doing because the way I put it, I wasn't looking for a religion. I already had one, you know, my parents gave me one mm-hmm. And so, to me, it wasn't about religion it was it was it was knowledge, it was direct experience. and so and Krishna, to me was this supremely fascinating, attractive person.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, so I tried in the book to get back to that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: to peel off at least in, in my writing. I didn't want to present Krishna as, so to speak, the God of religion. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not denying that, but the god of religion or as the you know the sacred deity of an institution i was really just trying to get back to the pure uh, experience of krishna and i know there was some sci-fi series done somewhere in australia somewhere in the world where they had krishna in it and what's interesting krishna was in it in a totally non-religious way but it was krishna mm-hmm. and so i thought in the book, I sort of consciously avoided the language, the vocabulary of piety and religion,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: not to hide Krishna, but to, in a sense, to uncover him.
0: Right. So you feel like in the book you really made an effort to strip away maybe some of the religious connotations or obstacles to really get back to your original fascination of. Krishna, the reality, yes. a bigger reality yes. than
1: just not to deny or criticize, let's say Krishna's role as someone who does center and sustain religion for thousands of years. I'm not trying to say that, you know, for people who are more, let's say, need the all the support of that institution, or of that religious language. You don't, want it and
0: you don't want to take that away, but for you, it's, there is more. yeah,
1: it, it's not invalid. I mean it's right. it's 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 valid. It it's it's a it's a way that human beings for thousands of years have been trying to approach transcendence.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that you know I'm better than you or that you shouldn't do that, or that's not a good thing to do at all. I understand, I understand that historically, in terms just the the nature of, of human beings. That's something most human beings need. Yes. But in trying to communicate to people outside an institution, I'm trying to show that Krishna may you know play that role. He does play that role, he has for thousands of years as the deity of religion, but that there's a way to experience Krishna outside an institutional framework And outside, because when we say religion, it's just like, for example, in India, people have a certain way of being religious and therefore based on their culture, history, psychology, group psychology. And so uh, when Krishna is the center of their religious behavior and sentiments and all that, they have a certain way of doing it to give a simple example. Uh, when people are are, are inspired by the divine or believe they're being inspired by the divine, then they they typically, throughout the world, throughout history, express their joy, express their conviction through music. Mm -hmm. And so in India, people make music in a certain way. They use certain instruments, they use certain rhythms. And I think there's a mistake that's very all very widely made. Mm. And that is to assume that let's say if Indians make devotional music in a certain way, where they praise Krishna with certain kinds of music, they're doing that because that's Krishna music. And the Indians are just fortunate to have received this spiritual music, I think it's the opposite. I think their devotion can be pure. However, they make certain kinds of music to glorify Krishna because that's the kind of music people in South Asia made. I think the, I mean, obviously it's interactive to some extent, the the presence of Krishna in their culture has shaped their cultural expression. But I also believe that their general culture, I mean, and we know that because the proof of it is that let's say you play certain Indian musical instruments most of the Indians or Hindus or Muslims that use those instruments are not doing it for Krishna. They're, you know, they're doing it for all kinds of things.
0: Right. And so. this is something you're very passionate about, I think, across the board, you know, kind of releasing Krishna from just having to be expressed in a certain way, a certain ethnic straitjacket. Yeah. yeah, You you feel like, you know, there's so, so much more. It's the devotion that matters, not so much the, what instrument you play or what accent you have or what language you speak. Well, I take food, for example. uh, I've heard this one. (laughs) It's, um,
1: I mean, certain, if you look at Indian history, even though Krishna has been, I mean, probably the single most important spiritual personality in, in South Asian history. And yet the culture, the Indian culture, or South Asian really more, has been heavily influenced by many different strains coming from many places in the world and, and by many other beliefs that go under the rubric of Hinduism. It's a different story. But, and so therefore, I think, for example, when I was in India, I, um, I met in an airport, just happened to talk for a moment with some gentleman who was a, uh, from South India, Kerala, a Christian,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. and I, I kind of saw and learned by talking to him that they feel more Christian when they wear Western suits, right? It makes them feel Christian. So, what I'm trying to do is get to an eternal Krishna who's not South Asian, who's not Western, who's not just because institutions. I would say are not very difficult for them to be absolutely transparent,
0: and plus they don't have a monopoly on something that's beyond yes, you know, human grasp really.
1: Yes, and I, I think just sociologically, the very fa- for example, if you and I were just talking,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, it, it might not be the exact same conversation as let's say if we were let's say we were in an auditorium with three hundred people listening, right. right. We, you know, we probably joke a lot more, book, so, but, um, but, so that's what I'm trying to do in that book, and that's what I'm trying to do even in the Mahabharata I'm working on now, mm-hmm. is I'm trying to get at a non-ethnic Krishna, a Krishna who has not been to some extent. I don't know. You say the vision of Krishna has not been affected by history and 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 social forces and ethnic preferences and all that and just get to Krishna
0: right
1: a, a Krishna who is as familiar to and interesting to Westerners or, or or people in South Asia or East Asian people or Pacific Islanders what all attractive
0: yeah yeah, that's a good
1: one. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> so I
0: encourage anyone who's watching this to pick up Justin Davis and experience Goswami's, you know, vision of Krishna <laughs> beyond religion, and you're going to get it in an awesome story format, too. So it's a win-win, I think. And I think I have one final question to conclude, and then I think we have questions and comments that we may be taking. Oh, yes, possibly. from the
1: – yeah, because we're on social media, aren't we?
0: Okay, so – No maybe no question and comments but i have one final question for you which i think we'll use to kind of wrap up today's uh, interview um so justin davis he kind of comes into his power in different ways through the story but one you know speaking of krishna you do introduce the idea of krishna being present in his holy name and that that's one of the methods that Justin uses to tap into his own.
1: I don't think I said holy. Did I say? Yes. I did
0: Yes.
1: In the book. Oh, i was curious.
0: <laughs> Did I insert that with my own mind? Um, you do say that he's present in his name. Yes, maybe not yes. holy name. Okay, so maybe you just say name minus the holy. But you definitely use you know the maha mantra, the mantra for him to, you know, tap into his kind of superhero powers in a way. So I just wanted to conclude maybe on a light note that my impression of the holy name is that it's used for us to um, reach kind of a devotional connection to Krishna. And then here in the novel, it's kind of used as a, as a method to tap into your superpowers. So would you wanna speak about Yeah, that. Yeah,
1: I think that ultimately we're saying the same thing because I, I, I do try to make very clear that one can tap into and everyone has superpowers if you tap into them
0: Mm -hmm.
1: because we're all spiritual beings that um the the price you have to pay to use crass capitalist imagery there the price you have to pay to tap into your power is pure devotion and 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 because you know that justin had to realize he could not access those powers just by practicing a lot, even by mundane virtues like courage and all that, he really did have to go within and he had to acknowledge himself as a spiritual being, which of course people don't wanna do if they're still attached to using their body to exploit the world or, or wanting to get all kinds of attention for their body or something. You can't do that and And so, the requirements, which you know are explained to him over and over again, is that he does have to do the spiritual part
0: mm-hmm. yeah, in, well, in justin our- was is such a fascinating character that you've made because he's pursuing his ambitions in both the material realm and the spiritual realm, and his his ambition is to be the best in both worlds, right. Yeah, yeah. To really, I mean, by best, I mean reaching the highest, like in this world. Yeah, to be the well. best he can be. So there, you there wasn't, you know, often yeah. often when we pursue spiritual things, there is the idea, oh, we need to renounce the world. We need to be poor. We need to, you know, not be of this world. We need to retreat. But mm. in the book, you really show that he is able to pursue excellence in this world through wealth, education, affluence, everything. He's able to ascend to, you know, what we see as the highest in this world, but he's simultaneously equally preoccupied with transcending on the eternal level. So I I really enjoyed that part of the book.
1: Yeah, and in fact, if he doesn't get the spiritual part, he's inevitably going to misuse the material part as we see nowadays.
0: And there is more books coming, right? Because I did feel like there was plenty of cliffhangers at the end.
1: Yeah, in fact, I conceived last little story, and I, I want to thank you. I've known Brenda. How old were you when I first saw Probably
0: 14 or 15. Yeah, so. It's been,
1: and it's I have to say, while. she was in a girl's <laughs> school, spiritual girl's school, and I'd go there sometimes and, you know, give a little guest lecture. And you were always kind of the most interesting person because you were oh, Wow. very bright. Well,
0: thank you.
1: And uh, very bright and very. Um, what's the word confident in the right way, self-confident in the right way. You were never afraid to raise points that you thought were important. And I really enjoyed that.
0: Well, I think I should thank you for being the type of teacher that encourages independent thinking. You do love to, you know, I felt very encouraged and very supported to be a little cheeky, to speak up (laughs) to, you you know, be just with it, you know. That's I, that's kind of what you expect from your students. So I think that's to your credit. I love that. I was
1: really yeah, I was always impressed by you. <laughs> so and, and so thank you very much. You you did a great interview and uh You were our professor at UF as well. Yeah, we you were
0: also our professor at UF, which we really enjoyed. Yeah, thanks for
1: taking the class. So I hope I hope people do read the book. So when I oh last little thing I was gonna say. You know I'm a Yes. The
0: yeah, lawyer.
1: Yeah, yeah. He's, he's an old friend of mine. So years ago, my God, when would that have been? Well, we can look it up. There was a movie playing in the theaters then called uh, Brave. No, no, Dragonheart. There was a movie called Dragonheart, and uh, he took me to see it. Of course, in those days, for someone, it was you know, Very in brave, our institution, right. to go yes. to a movie that was like. Isn't my that? my
0: dad still does not watch movies. I'm sure there are many.
1: Yeah, that was not done so much. So <laughs> but I went to this movie and what I learned and had not known is that Hollywood had made amazing breakthroughs in computer graphics. And in terms of the realism, just technically, movies were so different than what I'd seen when I was young before I began my monastic journey so and I was astonished by it. it just and I remember on the way home when he's driving me back home for the movie I think he, he bought the ticket which is nice but on the way home I had this vision that this is what I have to do not screenplays necessarily but that there's a whole world of narration of storytelling and it just inspired me so much. And, then I, and I remember when I got home, I, I thought, I've got to finish this book, which became a Justin Davis book. And I thought this is like an opportunity for me to try as far as I can, to learn to write. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so this whole book, I started, you know, in a sense for me, I was trying to learn as, as like a, you could say a midlife, you know, career option. I was trying to learn how to write yeah. and I was consciously reading books. Like how do you write novels and the the hero's journey, 12 step hero's journey. I was really trying to learn this and study it. How do you write? Right. So I wanted to reach people. And so I thought in this book, hopefully if I'm lucky, I'll learn how to write and then I can take all that to the Mahabharata. And so amazing things. I'll just say this and then I know we've probably gone long enough, but uh I feel that uh the Krishna in our language is is just showing me amazing things. And, and the Mahabharata, I hope to publish first volume within a couple of months. I think okay. I think devotees will be very surprised. It's it's something very new. And it's kind of like trying to use all this, whatever I could learn about writing, and then and then approach that ancient story of Krishna coming to this world in, in a very different way but in a way that does not violate you could say an ancient tradition
0: mm-hmm. stays within
1: tradition mm-hmm. but in terms of storytelling approaches it in a very different way so
0: stay tuned. yeah that's what i really try to do with retelling the Ramayana, and deliver it in a in a storytelling format that's compatible with the modern audience's need to be with the characters in real time
1: and you can mention one more time your book
0: oh yeah so just as goswami was saying he's coming out with a mahabharat you know the ancient indian epic he's also delivering it in a in a way that's going to be a, like an exciting story and maybe not constrained by some of the more you know sanskrit storytelling devices are quite different than than a modern um the the way we tell stories now and the way we want to be with the characters so that's kind of what I also brought to retelling the Ramayana my mother and I she illustrated and I wrote we just completed this trilogy retelling the Ramayana bringing in the female characters much more and also um you know really working it in a a story that feels more you can follow along with it uh quite smoothly and enter into the lives of the characters and you can find all of that at sitasfire.com but don't forget to pick up Justin Davis and I feel pretty confident that there's going to be more of them because I think the way you set up the ending there it's you left it open for yourself so that you there's going to be more more Justin Davises to come <laughs> we want to know more about Davy. we want to more know more about Justin and of course Joey and Star Davis we want to know what, what how their lives are going to unfold So thank you very much for allowing me to interview you. Maybe someday it's, I'll interview
1: you about your role.
0: Oh, I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you so that. much. Thank you so much. And I always love chatting with you. So
1: thank you. And you really are one of the best of your generation. Oh, thank
0: you very
1: much. So thank you all thank for listening. You. I hope we'll see you all again soon.
0: Yeah. Bye
1: bye. That was great, Brenda.